This call is being recorded. Hi, uh, welcome to the RCCB uh, Opportunity Fund update call for December 5th. Um, this is Dustin Cavello uh, from the tax team here at Royer Cooper. I'm here with my colleague Layla Vaughn, also from the tax team at Royer Cooper. Um, this call I think should be fun. It's probably going to be a little bit more uh, technical than than some of our other calls. Um, and it's it's more focused probably as well. Uh, what we're trying to do here today is talk really about, you know, the best way to maximize opportunity zone benefits for property that an investor had already owned, whether it's a business or uh, or a building or land um, before 2018. Um, and unlike most of our calls, uh, we did send out or make available on our website slides to help follow along on the conversation. Um, if you want a copy of those slides, you can also email uh, oz at rccblaw.com. You don't need the slides to follow along, but they could be helpful um, to follow along, and they could be helpful after the after the call as well. So I guess you know, starting at the top, uh, again, we're talking about maximizing opportunity zone benefits for um, for uh, property that uh, an investor owned before 2018. And, and, and Layla, let's start there. Why, why does that matter? Why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about getting opportunities on benefits in the first place? Meaning what are they? No, why would, why would it be an issue uh, if, if somebody owned a property before 2018? Sure. So um, the, to be good property for the, the asset tests under the code, and the regulations, the property has to be acquired after 2017 by purchase. Uh, so if we're talking about a scenario where the investor already owns the property before 2018, then you know if, if they're contributing it to a new entity, that's not acquired by purchase, it's acquired by contribution. And um, if they just bring in new investors, then it's not acquired at all. So it requires some structuring to really get around that. And in addition to the um, the requirement in layman's terms that it be acquired by purchase, there's also limitations for acquisitions from related parties. So it's not considered a purchase if you own 100% of your old company and you own 100% or even... 30% of your new company and you acquire the property, the new company acquires the property from the old company, that's not a purchase under the code. Yeah. So, you know, at a high level, we, we don't really know why Congress put this requirement in the code. But, you know, from a high level, what, what they were trying to do is really incentivize new investment into the zone. So a lot of clients, the reason we're even talking about this, a lot of clients um, you know, had speculated or acquired property or, you know, have already been running a business and are certainly willing to invest in their business or their property, you know, that happened to be in the zone that they've held for a while. Um, but, you know, just given the statute, again, you know, Congress wanted to really invest, uh, incentivize new investment, um, you know, and, and I don't know that there's a real clear distinction between uh, an investor who wants to develop things they already own in the zone or or further invest in things they already own in the zone and in things that you know they've acquired um, on account of this uh, statute but you know it is what it is that's what the statute says um, so 
we're getting this question all the time, right? And and clients are are you know wanting to develop their property that they owned prior to 2018. <clears throat> so we've developed some strategies. Um, none of them are you know 100% satisfactory. I would say, you know, clients to your point, Leila, can't just uh, just the way the statute's written, you know, develop property, even if they're willing to put additional equ equity or additional capital into the property that they've already owned without without doing something. So <clears throat> I guess maybe we should just dive into the to the first structure. Um, the first structure is probably the easiest. You want to kind of go over it and talk about, you know, what somebody would do and what the what the limitations are. And then, sure. and I should say, if you're following along on the slides from our website, um, this scenario is scenario one. one. Yeah. So um, if you think of a scenario where you have an ownership group that owns old company, as we've called it, they, that group owns 100% of old company. Old company owns the property in question that's in the qualified opportunity zone. We can avoid the restrictions on a sale to a related party simply by having the purchaser of that property be a new qualified opportunity fund in which that old ownership group owns no more than 20%. So there are fairly technical, complex uh, rules relating to, you know, constructive ownership and, and related party testing, but, you know, we're trying to make it simple here for, for purposes of illustration. If you're talking about a scenario where you needed to bring in new investor money in, in quite a large quantity that it, it would already make economic sense to bring in a new 80% or more investor, this can be a pretty effective strategy. Um, in, in this scenario, you have old company triggering gain on this property. So um, we're talking about instead of rolling over an investment in property, <laughs> continuing to have carryover basis and a, a non-taxable event, we're triggering the tax on the sale of the property. But then this may provide an, um, an avenue for that old ownership group to actually take advantage of the Qualified Opportunity Zone benefits by turning around and putting a portion of that gain into this new qualified opportunity fund. Yeah, so so if, you know, perhaps uh, somebody owns land that, you know, say they've got a $100 basis and it's worth a 1000 bucks, they would sell it, you know, they would raise $900 in this new opportunity fund, um, sell it to the opportunity fund uh, using the $100 that, you know, rolling their, actually, they, let's back up a second. <laughs> they would raise a 1000 bucks in this new opportunity yeah. fund. Um, they would fund, you know, up to nine, up to two hundred dollars, really, right? Um, of that thousand bucks, they would buy the property from themselves, essentially, in this new opportunity fund. <laughs> and it's important for them to know that they would they would pay tax on, you know, their their nine hundred dollar gain in twenty twenty six, right? That's that's one of the detriments to here. You're gonna you're gonna wind up, you know, triggering capital gains that you have to pay tax on in twenty twenty six even though um, at least a portion of that capital is wrapped up in, in, you know, in the acquisition financing, right, in the equity financing. 
Right, but presumably they they cashed out, you know, in your example at least, some of that investment, so a, a prudent investor could set aside some of that. Yeah, yeah. So some cash. some of the some of the complexity here is, you know, again funding that tax liability. <laughs> Secondly, um, that twenty percent relationship test can get can get pretty complicated, right? You know, uh, the related party it includes you know, things that you are, entities that you're invested in, and it can include your parents, your grandparents, your children, your grandchildren, um, you know, trusts that you have some kind of a relationship with. So um, if you're going to do this, you know, the simplest thing to do is to sell it to, to real life bona fide unrelated parties. But if you want to do something a little bit more uh, in the family, so to speak, you got to really look at it really closely as to whether, you know, the 80% owners of the Qualified Opportunity Fund are quote-unquote related for tax purposes um, and then I guess another uh, uh, challenge for clients that you know there are somewhat satisfactory but not fully satisfactory answers to you is you know they they see this appreciating asset they want to be in for more than 20% right um, so you can't really be in more for more than 20% and without violating that related party test but you know, there might be other alternatives, whether it's a development fee or, um, you know, high interest MES debt as part of the uh, the, the financing, um, you know, subject to, to lender consent and things like that, where you could stay in the property, um, get some economic return in ways other that, you know, that are not equity returns. Um, but that's, that 20% is a hard and fast rule and, and you know, uh, can can be an economic impediment and, for a lot of people, and that's of capital or profits. So you couldn't <coughs> have a way get around it by saying the interest <clears throat> the interest in capital is twenty percent, but there's an additional profits interest that that would blow your twenty percent limitation. Yep. So let's say you know uh, you want to be in for more than twenty percent, right? So uh, that that scenario one, the sale to a, a brand new opportunity fund that that you only have a twenty, you as the previous owner only have a twenty percent equity interest in, <clears throat> that doesn't work for you. So let's move to scenario two. Um, scenario two is you know sort of focused on operating businesses, but but it could also you know apply to land. Um, which is more kind of, I guess, scenario three. <clears throat> but what, what this is, and, and I should say, you know, the big downside in scenario two, or the upside in scenario two is, you know, the old ownership group can certainly own more than 20% of the upside of the equity in uh, in the business. Um, so, you know, in terms of the economic return, it's it's more flexible than, than the first scenario. <clears throat> and you're not going to trigger gain in 2026, or taxable gain in 2026 or anything like that. The big downside in scenario two is, you know, the old ownership group wouldn't get opportunity zone benefits in this scenario, right? It's it's for new money. So, so what it is 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 basically it's it's pretty simple. Bring in new money into a you know a pre-existing uh, company or pre-existing partnership that owns real estate, <clears throat> and as long as the new money um, is substantial. Uh, in terms of you know, in terms of the, the proceeds being being substantial enough to acquire new assets or substantially improve pre-existing assets, um, then you can get above the substantially all test, which is the 70% good asset test at the entity level. You know, and this the reason it's probably easier for operating businesses is 
you know, if they're expanding, they're opening a new plant, or they're making substantial capital and investment, you know, you're going to have good original use property for for all that, and they probably have, you know, um, or they might have fewer, you know, depreciate fewer assets on their balance sheet prior to the investment, so that, you know, an investment can be can be big enough to 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 meet that substantial all test, because that's that's a pretty big hurdle. Right. Um, yeah, you're not going to see like a commercial real estate developer working well in this scenario. But on the other hand, if you were looking at perhaps, you know, single family units, you could play with the values of, of different properties yeah. to try to meet the balance, the 70% balance test. Yeah. And it's important to mo note that that 70% balance sheet test is tangible assets. So in particular for like an asset light business, that might not be terribly difficult to meet, right? If you bring in you know, investor cash and, and you're a, an IT developer or a software company, you know, you're not going to have a lot of tangible assets. So to invest that uh, cash into things like, you know, computers, desks, things, you know, that you're going to need in your business, uh, that might not be a terribly material investment and it might get you above the 70% test for tangible assets just because you don't have many tangible assets on your balance sheet to begin with. Um, the other side of that is, you know, if you bring in investor cash, uh, and it's not earmarked for investment in assets, it's going to be a bad asset. So, so you got to kind of time this, right? You know, you bring in the cash, and as you pay your people to develop software, you know, you got to make sure that on, on the six-month mark and, and December 31 of, of the tax year that, you know, you're not sitting on a bunch of cash. So <laughs> there are certainly some challenges here, but, um, but it's, you know, in the, in the right circumstances, this, this can be very effective for, for raising new equity in an opportunity fund environment. And in you mentioned um, it not working for the old ownership group to get opportunity zone benefits, but if the old ownership group or someone in the old ownership group had gained from something unrelated, could they get some benefits not through their carryover interest but by investing additional capital into the qualified opportunity fund? Um, that's a good question. I, I suppose they could. I suppose they as could. long as it's yeah not blowing our related party rules. Yeah, right, right. You're right. It would, you know, they'd be able to basically be 20% of the opportunity fund. Um, so that's, that's a way for them to kind of blend opportunity zone benefits with, with non-opportunity zone benefits. Um, so I guess moving on to scenario three, um, it's kind of similar to scenario two but um, you know, a little bit more focused on real estate than an operating business. Uh, so, and what what you would do in scenario three is, you know, pull two things: uh, new investor cash and you know previous LA owned land um, that that you already own in an ownership group. And um, like two, you know, it's important to note that the old ownership group for the appreciation in the land that they contribute isn't going to get opportunity zone benefits. <clears throat> but the new investors will. So it's a good way to raise money, but you need to understand that, you know, um, you as the previous owner aren't going to directly benefit from, from the opportunity zone benefits. And, you know, the key issue here, I guess, is, is valuation, right? That land is, is kind of by definition a bad asset because it wasn't owned before, uh, I'm sorry, it was owned before 2018. Um, but as long as that bad asset is, you know, less than 30% of the value of uh, of the new business, of the new venture, 
that bad asset plus any other bad assets. Well, that's true. That's true. Any other bad assets as well. <laughs> you know, but but conceivably, like if you just put in land and uh, new investor cash, that that new investor cash is going to be working capital um, and good working capital for purposes of of the working capital safe harbor. But but you're you're right. I mean, you have to be mindful of of all the bad assets. You know, not violating the thirty percent test. Um, and then you know, use the investor cash to develop the land. Um, do you want to talk about you know whether this is permitted in the code as it's written, or or how we get there in terms of getting comfortable that this structure is one that that is likely to work? Sure. So um, the central issue for this is whether you have, if you think back to how I described the requirement for a good asset, it has to be purchased by the Opportunity Fund after 2017, and then, um, and then property has to be either original use or substantially improved. Here we're talking about land that is contributed and property that is self-constructed inside the Qualified Opportunity Fund. So the operative question there is, can self-constructed property be considered acquired by purchase? Um, it's not necessarily what you would intuitively think of as acquiring something by purchase. It seems more like an improvement on the land itself. But if you look to some comparable incentives in the past, the regulations and other guidance under those um, incentive uh, programs have actually explicitly allowed self-constructed property to be treated as acquired by purchase. So I actually recently put together some comments to the IRS with the ABA tax action that requests similar guidance that blesses this structure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, this can be this can be a good structure. Uh, you know, again, it's none of these are completely satisfactory. They all have kind of some issues, uh, but but this is a good way to raise new money to develop that land in, in a QOF. Um, I guess the the fourth and, and final scenario is is more of a leasing structure. So, do you want to talk about this? Um, sure. So, I think here you have the old ownership group with with the property. Instead of contributing it to the new qualified opportunity fund or selling it to the new qualified opportunity fund, it's entering into a lease. And then the new Qualified Opportunity Fund, um, which is supported by this new investor group that brought in cash capital, will develop a new building on that existing land in this hypothetical. So, um, you know, you, you don't have the appreciation of the land getting any Qualified Opportunity Zone benefits here. You really have just this business that is dependent on the lease um, that would get the Qualified Opportunity Zone benefit. So uh, in my view, this is perhaps the least exciting structure. Um, and I mean, in, in this particular structure, we have it needing to meet the 90% test, but I think we could equally drop it down another level yeah. and use a, a joint venture to, to take advantage of the 70% test. To, to make it a little bit easier. Yeah. I think this structure, I, I think you're right, this structure is pretty complicated, um, but but one thing it does do 
is it probably maximizes you know the old ownership group's economic ownership of of the appreciation because as you said I mean the the land is outside the qualified opportunity fund mm -hmm. so any appreciation on the land is going to inure to the ownership group to the old ownership group you know subject to regular tax right they're going to pay capital gains tax if they ever sell it but but they pre they keep 100% of that appreciation <clears throat> and they're also going to get cash flow right they're going to get a lease payment from the opportunity fund for for the ground lease um, throughout the life so you know economically this might be the most attractive for an old oak for the old ownership group um, but you know this the same the same things that make it attractive economically for them are going to make it complicated and maybe less attractive for the opportunity fund investors okay. um, I guess I guess those are the structures that that we've developed and thought about um, you know it is an interesting it's an interesting uh, uh, situation that Congress put us in with with the after acquired or I'm sorry the property acquired after 2017 rule um, but uh, you know investors are, are interested in this question and hopefully you know some of these structures might might be able to kind of bridge that gap and I think each structure really you know which one makes the most sense will have to be analyzed very carefully in the context of the particular facts. So yeah. there's not a one-size-fits-all solution. Um, you know, it really depends on the goals of both the new investors and the prior owners and, you know, how important the tax benefits are to each party. Yep, yep. Um, so uh, it looks like we don't have any questions today. Hopefully that means our slides were incredibly clear and our, uh, and our presentation was incredibly clear and not that it was incredibly confusing. Um, but uh, again, if you want a copy of our slides, they're available on our website. You can also email uh, oz at rccblaw.com. <clears throat> We're happy to share them, and uh, please reach out with any questions, and we will see you in two weeks for another Opportunity Zone call. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Dustin.